This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. Hi, I'm Greg Watson, and welcome to this show of Property Matters here, 22nd of December. Just before Christmas, I hope the festive season isn't going too crazy for you and I hope you have a beautiful Christmas and a lovely new year with those you love or by yourself, depending on which you may prefer or what your situation may be. The world of real estate continues. It doesn't stop for Christmas and it doesn't stop for New Year, although you may notice there are a few less open homes and that property management companies are on call as the staff members spend time with their loved ones. I just wanted to reflect back a little bit on recent stats for November in terms of areas across New Zealand where things have gone pretty busy. You may be aware that almost 10,000 properties sold in November, which was a 29.6% increase from the same time the year before. In fact, that's the highest number of properties that have been sold in this country since March 2007. Now, according to, that's according to the data from the Real Estate Institute of New Zealand. Now, where have these sales volumes increased? Well, West Coast has gone up 74%, Northland 36, Canterbury 31, Bay of Plenty 29, Nelson 25, Waikato 21. So big increases in those areas in the number of properties that are for sale. And... November saw more than half of the regions across the country with double-digit percentage increases in the annual sales volumes. And uh, Palmas North wasn't one of them. Um, However, uh, it is certainly um, still very busy here. But where where things have changed here, of course, is that median house price for the Manawatu-Wanganui region, which has gone over 503000 but 11 regions actually saw record median prices in November. Tasman's gone up 28%. This is year-on-year property values at the median rate. Southland, 23.6. Taranaki, 21.2. Marlborough, 19.4. Bay of Plenty, 18.4. Wellington, 14.5. White Cattle, 13.2. Canterbury's increased 13.1. And Nelson, 9.8%. So really amazing growth across the country. I know when it was sort of averaged out, so to speak, that it's around 20%. And that's where 20% of, well, 20% increase in wealth in asset value for those people that own properties. That's a really significant uh, increase there. So really it's been been interesting that also that the inventory levels are at the lowest point ever in eight regions. So eight regions have the lowest amounts of properties available that they've had in a long time. Manawatu Wanganui is one of those. And that's just because what you find is a, I guess, a inverted correlation where as the number of properties uh, are not, or there isn't enough properties, uh, the um, as that percentage of properties for sale goes down, the percentage uh, of the values goes up. So yet yeah, really quite uh, noticeable indeed. Big, big changes. And even, even month on month uh, was quite outstanding as well, or by quarter. For example, in Manawatu Wanganui, in one quarter, the prices went up 14.7%. In one month... 
before November they've gone up 6.9%. What an incredible increase uh, in property values around the country. And then this article, which is slightly old now, it's a couple of weeks old, but it's the government to wait until next year to act on housing crisis despite skyrocketing prices. The government is leaving any action on the housing crisis until in the new year. There was a significant number of houses sold in November despite the inventory dropping over 16%, but the government is leaving any action on the housing crisis until the new year, and this is a News Hub article. It goes on again about the house prices and how things are changing. But then they give an example of some folks, which is really sort of typical of what's happening at the moment. So Jacob Jenkins and Jesse Rigglesworth were able to secure their first home on Friday for 860000 They say it's been really emotional, an emotional roller coaster. The budget has definitely had to be increased a little bit, she told News Hub. The auction was the end of what's been a stressful struggle. We definitely had a few shocks of thinking we were going well over what we should have, thinking we were paying a good price, and then it goes for $300,000 over that. Those are the really tough ones. So that's where it's, uh, I mean, they can celebrate Christmas in their new home, those folks, but other desperate first-home buyers have just had to hold out hope that they might get that big day one day. And according to Stuff Business, the Reserve Bank forecasts a 1% to 2% drop in house prices from LVRs. So the Reserve Bank is forecasting that reimposing the loan-to-value restrictions on mortgage lending from March 1st will only decrease house prices by 1% or 2%. That is relative to the price that housing might be if the controls were not restored. So headline like this can be a little confusing. So it's forecasting a 1% to 2% drop in house prices. Now, if the where I see this is more like if the market was going up by 15%, it's only going to go up by 14 or 13 So really I don't think it's going to have much of an uh, effect at all. The Reserve Bank made the forecast in a consultation paper which appears to have been issued mostly as a formality on Tuesday inviting submissions on its previously announced proposal to reinstate LVRs. The return of LVRs has been prompted by concerns that buyers are taking too many risks on taking on big loans against an uncertain economic backdrop due to COVID-19 which threatens financial stability, the Reserve Bank said. The bank calculated that when it first improved uh, sorry, imposed LVRs in 2013, they probably led to a 3 to 6 percentage point reduction in house price inflation, with most of the impact happening in their first year. But it's forecasting a lesser impact this time around, given the starting point was different, and with there already being less risky lending. The controls should simply ensure more risky lending to owner-occupiers did not increase, while keeping high LVR lending to investors on its previous downward trajectory. However, given housing markets could suffer from irrational exuberance, LVR restrictions should help to guard against a possible further acceleration in house price inflation, it said. The Reserve Bank had not forecast and was instead taken by surprise by a strong rise in the house prices post-COVID, but it reiterated it was not directly targeting housing prices. Neither the long-run level of house prices nor housing affordability are the objectives of the LVR restrictions, the bank paper said. However, by limiting highly leveraged purchasing, LVR restrictions may moderate house price volatility somewhat, moderating price increases and upturns and price decreases and downturns. 
So concerns that there may be a rush to buy housing ahead of March 1st are being played down by the bank. The Reserve Bank said the date would give banks time to clear their existing pipeline of lower equity loans that had been approved but not yet settled. But in practice it was likely riskier lending would decrease well before then as banks prepared for the change. And that's something that we've seen historically that banks, uh, in fact banks are already uh, being more careful in their lending ahead of this change. Now what's interesting is that people might think that these higher LVRs stop investors and I'd say it would have very little effect at all. For example, if I'm an investor in Maruatu, Wanganui and I own a number of properties, remember they've gone up by around 25 to 30% in one year, the equity. So I could gather those bits of equity together and it's very, very easy to get a deposit for a new rental property. Yet, if the LVRs change and that makes it harder for first home buyers, that seems a bit counterproductive to the government wanting to get people into homes, at least into their own homes that they own. My personal view, as it has been for a long time, is that in New Zealand we seem to think that owning a home is everybody's right. I would say that having a roof over your head is probably everybody's right, but not necessarily owning a home. There's many countries overseas, uh, particularly in parts of Europe, where people will quite happily rent all of their life and invest in other areas other than property, or even including property. Um, but And that's where they don't have the same mindset that it's almost like a, a right, a human right to own a house. But anyway, that's just my little rant on that. But talking about buying a house, uh, this article from Stuff.co Lifestyle says, how much deposit do you need? So first-home buyers need to save at least $100,000 in much of the country to even get in the door of their own home. So data from CoreLogic shows median prices that first-home buyers pay. In Auckland, the median house price so far this year for first-home buyers was $799. In Tauranga, it was $600. Hamilton 575, Wellington 650, and Christchurch just over 400,000. So the Reserve Bank temporarily removed the loan to value ratio restrictions this year, which required owner occupiers to have a deposit or equity of 20% when they purchased. But those are set to return, as I mentioned, early next year, as many lenders have continued to require a 20% deposit anyway. So only $528 million of lending to first home buyers in October was at a loan-to-value ratio of 80% of a total of $1.4 billion in first home loans. So only about a third were affected. So that means that deposits of more than 100000 were required in all the main centres except for Dunedin and Christchurch where they would need about 90000 So Wellington buyers would have to save 130000 now and an Auckland first home buyer could expect to need to scrape together about 160000 in Queenstown about $165,000. So where, how long that would take, I have no idea. That's some incredibly hardcore saving over a long period of time. So the median first home buyer price for the country of five sixty five would require a deposit of 113000 So I don't know, what do we do? Start buying lotto tickets? Start buying scratchies? I haven't quite figured that out although I must go and check my lotto ticket from Saturday night, just in case I did the big win. So to answer that question, CoreLogic Head of Research Nick Goodall said his firm estimated that a person on an average wage and buying a home at the national median price would need to save 15% of their income for nine years. And he said the deposit requirements were getting higher and higher. Now the scary thing there is, 
house prices going up so quick, that I'm not sure if he's taken into account that those house prices would rise. You'd need to keep saving and saving. So KiwiSaver is helping but not providing the whole amount. And in September, $137.4 million was withdrawn from KiwiSaver for first-home purchases by 5,010 people at an average of $27,500 each. So there is still a significant hurdle to overcome even after that. Mortgage broker Glenn McLeod of Edge Mortgages said it was hard work for buyers to pull a deposit together. Few qualified for first-home loans, which allow a 5% deposit for people who earn less than $130,000 as a couple and who are buying below the price cap, which varies according to the region. And he said he saw a large number of buyers needing parents' help to purchase. As well as that, banks were cracking down on how they calculated buyers' expenses. He said that way people had used their money over they, they look at the way that people had used their money over the, next, of, over the last six months before they applied for a loan, and that would be put under scrutiny. Mine would be filled with a whole lot of fast food like McDonald's, KFC, etc. Uh, but let's not go down that KFC tunnel of uh, landlords, you might remember, checking bank statements before deciding to give properties to people. That was in the media just earlier this year. So if you're saving for a deposit... Glenn McLeod says, save and watch your spending. You'll be in a better position than if you are casually spending left, right and centre. It is a picture, not just about the deposit. It is tough. It is not always easy to get a mortgage. But once in the door, mortgage payments are actually often quite manageable by comparison. And CoreLogic worked out that on a 2.5% mortgage rate, the median first-home buyer mortgage in Auckland would be $1,066 a fortnight. That's 257 more than rent. In Wellington, the mortgage repayments were $103 more than rent, and in Christchurch, owning was uh, sorry, $6 dearer than renting. In Tauranga and Dunedin, it was cheaper to own. CoreLogic data also showed the cheapest first homes in the country were in Wairua, where first home buyers had spent a little over $200,000 each so far this year. So some interesting stats there as well. And we'll come back to this shortly. But just first, a little bit of music. We've got the dudes, some Kiwi music. Be mine tonight.
And you're listening to Property Matters on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, Te Reo, Irarangi o Nga Tangata o Manawatu. I'm Greg Watson. It's lovely having you along today. And we're just covering a bit of property news. This one's on the international side of things. Airbnb share price soars on its debut. So around about the 10th or 11th of December, Airbnb listed itself as intellectual property on the stock market. So this article says the Airbnb IPO has been a long time coming. However, the timing of the pandemic did prompt a lot of speculation that it may be delayed until next year once the travel sector had begun to show the evidence of recovery. So it was therefore a little surprising when the announcement was made of a listing this month, and it was even more surprising at the stampede we saw when it came out of the traps on the first day of trading on the 10th. The first day closing price of $144.71 is an absolutely phenomenal gain from the initial pricing of $44 to $50 a share. That's almost triple so raising the question as to whether the IPO was priced too low when the listing was made. At the current Airbnb share price, investors would appear to value Airbnb at a vertigo-inducing $86.4 billion. This speaks to a market that has clearly lost all sense of perspective. So if we compare it to the hotel chain Marriott International has a market cap of $42 billion. Remember, Airbnb $86 billion or Intercontinental Hotels, who own Holiday Inn and the Crown Plaza, which has a market cap of just over $10 billion uh, US dollars. This sort of valuation almost beggars belief, and even more so when you look at Airbnb's finances. With revenues in 2019 of $4.8 billion, the company is unlikely to make anywhere near close to that this year, and will probably struggle to get near that in 2021. If you compare that with the annual revenues of the Marriott in 2019, which came to $20.9 billion. And while true that hotel chains have huge levels of fixed costs in terms of real estate and staff, unlike Airbnb, this valuation is still quite extraordinary. The company was running at a loss even before the pandemic struck, losing $674 million in 2019, and it is on course to lose even more this year, despite a third-quarter profit, which largely came about as a result of huge cuts to its marketing budget. Year to date, Airbnb is already nursing losses of $697 million on revenues of $2.52 billion. However, in its most recent quarter, the company had managed to turn a profit of $219 million on revenues of $1.34 billion. So this was a significant increase in revenues from the $334 million in quarter two and was only slightly smaller than that a year ago. But the loss in the first half of this year was still high, coming in at $916 million dollars although the, norm, the return to profit in quarter three does suggest the potential for return to some form of normality. Though judging by last year's performance, quarter three does tend to be the quarter when the company performs better. So is this Airbnb valuation of $86 billion realistic? As things stand, the company is unlikely to turn a profit this year, and while it has plenty of cash to play with, it's remarkable that anyone thinks that this sort of valuation is realistic in these uncertain times. We already know that profitability is not top of the list when it comes to investors looking to buy in, especially given the risks the business model is likely to face in the years ahead, even without the pandemic. Already this week, it's been reported that the UK Treasury is looking to target the likes of Uber and Airbnb in a review of its value-added tax policy to bolster government revenues. It's unlikely that UK will be alone in this, with the EU also looking to regulate and tax the business model more effectively in order to remove the competitive advantage it enjoys over the traditional hotel sector. 
So time will tell whether the current valuation of Airbnb is sustainable, but it isn't realistic, and unless the business can display anything like a level of long-term profitability, the froth could well come off quickly. And to me, it reminds me of the crazy times of um, in Silicon Valley when the bubble burst, when people were investing huge amounts of money in internet properties. Finally today, a waterfront batch that last sold for £45 snapped up for £1.26 million. So a Ragnarland property that, is just so, that last sold in predestinable currency days for £45 has fetched more than a million dollars at auction. And the new owners of the waterfront property say they want to restore the old fibrolite clad batch so new generations can enjoy its charms. The sale of the Greenslade Road batch generated strong interest from outside the region but it was eventually snapped up by a Waikato buyer at auction on Wednesday. Respected, and that's Wednesday, that's <laughs> probably a week and a half ago, respected astronomer Alan Bryce purchased the property in 1943 for £45, about half the price he paid for a telescope at £75 a year earlier. Bryce's daughter, Bessie Amner, was among family members who attended the auction. Lodge real estate agent Sue Hall said Amner and her family were thrilled with the new owner's plans for the property. The purchasers are going to keep the existing dwelling and build a new property as well. I think it's really cool they're going to keep the original dwelling but bring it up to 2020 standards as they love the heritage of the building. The batch, which dates back to the 1940s, is one of four buildings on a 2,226 square metre section and boasts expansive views of Lorenzen Bay. Hall said their new owners wanted to make the property a generational home, which is awesome. It's fantastic to purchase for them. It's great that it's going to be used by different generations, children and grandchildren. Hall wasn't surprised by the price, having predicted the batch would sell for more than a million dollars. I guess it goes to show you how much pressure there is on the Raglan market, she said. The average sales price in Raglan is now $735,000. One thing that's quite neat is most of the trees on the property were planted by Amna's grandfather, so you've got mature kauri, totara, pohitakara, manuka and puriri. So um, it sounds like a really nice spot. And that's all we've got time for this week. Uh, wishing you all the very best for the festive season. Have a lovely Christmas day and we'll catch up with you this time in a week. While many people are holidaying, I'll be chatting away here around Property Matters. It might be a time to have a listen to some of the podcasts and you can find that where all good podcasts are found. I'd recommend podbean.com, that's B-E-A-N, podbean.com. And of course we're here on One or Two People's Radio. Our older episodes are available on the website npr.nz. And alternatively, uh, if you want to, just tune in on Tuesdays. I'll be here, you'll be here and we'll discuss property on Property Matters. Thanks very much. Have a great Christmas and a happy new year. Support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.